Hello and welcome to On the Flip Side, a podcast where two 30-something entrepreneurs dissect and dive into some pretty impactful books of today. We were teasing earlier about how we read the books and you listen to our thoughts on them. We're not sure if we're taking away any of the effort, but we love the book so much that we thought we would give it a try. (laughs) You know, we get something out of this too. (laughs) (laughs) Quality time and lots of editing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm your co-host, Amanda Nystrom, and I'm here with Lindsay Hooper. Hi. And today we are here to talk about the final chapter of the book Burnout by Emily and Amelia Nagoski. And it is quite a doozy of a last chapter. It starts with the title Grow Mighty and goes directly into the mad woman in the attic. I know her well. (laughs) (laughs) So this mad woman, I, you know, what's funny is I'm sitting here thinking that even calling her that feels a little gaslighty. So like, let's throw that in, in the first three minutes of this episode, (laughs) but like, who, who is she? I want to start by saying we all have a mad woman in the attic. I don't care what gender you are um, or how you identify. We all have one. Um, And we all have one because her job is to manage the chasm between what we are and what human giver syndrome has told us we should be. And so she's fragile. This is an immense responsibility. And so she's reactive. They say in the book, the mad woman can't help it. She'll flip out whenever she learns about another way in which the world demands more from us than we're giving. And she'll try to make it someone's fault our own or the world's so familiar right (laughs) her only two options um and this is from the book this isn't just me flying by the seat of my pants they say she only has two options is the world a lying asshole with bogus expectations or is there something wrong with us and like it's up to us to manage this mad woman in the attic. And there's like a lot of different ways we can go about doing this. But I think the most important thing to remember is that one, we need her. And two, we also have to parse what's real and what is, what is her trying to place blame on one person or another? They say, listen to her stories, never forgetting she's a mad woman. Hmm. That's a pretty hard thing to do, though. I mean, so often, at least in my own head, the mad woman takes over and I'm left in the background wondering, like, what side of myself is actually showing? And in the book, it says that this is where 
having the context of connected knowing is important versus separate knowing. And as a reminder, connected knowing is really taking a situation within its full breadth and context, as opposed to separate knowing where you usually take only one bit out of the entire situation and you evaluate that. It's almost like rational thought, except that you are leaving all the context behind. But it's hard. Listening to the mad woman in your brain is, it's hard to identify that, especially when you're, you're burnt out or you're dealing with stress after stress after stress and you're in a corner and you're trying to get everything done and then you become reactive and you become the mad woman. Yeah, she can really, <laughs> uh, she can really take over, really take hold of the steering wheel and, and do some crazy stuff. The mad woman really has a couple of tools in her toolkit. And the first two, and these are the rough ones, they are harsh self-criticism and toxic perfectionism. Um, and I'm going to be honest, I dabble in both. <laughs> Because the truth is that the mad woman can criticize anything, good, bad, or otherwise, because she's trying to basically attribute fault or blame to everything going on. So when it comes to harsh self-criticism, uh, it's the gap between you and expected you. And because there's a gap, it's a sign of your essential failure in life and the result is guilt and shame which is just such a mouthful the mad woman is trying to help you bridge between who you are and the ideal version of you and if you're anything like me the reality is you're probably gonna fall short in real life because it's real life and you are really a human. What I was going to ask is, I mean, you said it's who you are right now versus the ideal you, the ideal you in whose eyes? You's eyes. <laughs> are we sure? Are we sure that's the only thing that's influencing the difference between who we are and who our ideal version of ourselves is? That's a mouthful. There's, there's a thousand things affecting it at any given point. And the reality is this sort of ideal you is probably more akin to the ideal you through the lens of human giver syndrome. Mm. You're just expected to be perfect when it comes to human giver syndrome. Remember, you need to be kind and pretty and fun and placid and easy regardless of what's happening around you it takes the human out of you it turns you into a giver i don't know i think of it as the guilt shame cycle Brene brown says guilt is i made a mistake and shame is i am a mistake one word makes all the difference there i've read a lot of Brene brown and she's who I want to be like when I grow up. Um, 
And I love this distinction between guilt and shame because everybody has shame. Everybody has guilt in one way or another. And as Brene Brown puts it, the people who don't have shame are those who are emotionally unable to have those kinds of emotions, which, you know, leads to some form of sociopath. We're not talking about that as much as we are talking about that every human that is not a sociopath has shame and guilt. And the difference there is that the more we bring shame to the forefront, the less power it has over us. Guilt, on the other hand, is something that we have to work with, right? But knowing the distinction between I made a mistake and I am a mistake is so crucial to calming down our mad woman and having less self-criticism. I think part of the thing is that the mad woman has a bullhorn and a captive audience, right? So I think it's pretty easy for her to turn, I made a mistake into, I am a mistake. And I think part of that comes down to what they call toxic perfectionism. So there is, like most things, a spectrum of perfectionism. One end, completely benign. On the other end, extremely toxic. Um, and the toxic side of things is when perfectionism functions as a maladaptive strategy to cope. So if you are out of tools in your toolkit and the only metric you are holding up against whatever this project is, is, is it perfect? You're probably going to fall short, not because it's bad and not full of joy or effort or you know, thought or personality, but because it's not necessarily going to be perfect. I mean, this is something that I know we both sort of wrestle with sometimes. The notion of if you make one mistake, everything is ruined, right? Like how many times have we been approaching a deadline and I have something but it's not perfect, so I'm not ready for you to see it yet. I mean, I struggled for years and years fighting against my own toxic perfectionism. And regardless of where it came from, the reality is, is that it was setting me up for failure. Mm -hmm. it, it does terrible things to your monitor. It does terrible things to who you are as a person and it prevents you from being okay with life as it happens now because we're always in this search of it has to be perfect and perfectionism is probably one of the most crippling things that we do to ourselves that we don't even think about. I had a, a team member a few years ago who said that they struggled with perfectionism and it got to a point where they struggled so much with it that they couldn't do their job because perfectionism does, it sets you up for failure. And I did the same thing. I mean, for so many years and I was, I would never celebrate the small things, the small wins everything was stressful. When yet another thing came up, I was reactive 
because I wouldn't be happy with where anything was in my life because it wasn't perfect. It wasn't flawless. And I think human givers syndrome teaches perfectionism sort of as a key lesson or a guiding moral force that if you can't be everything all of the time for everyone else, then you suck. But the reality is that's not, that's not how the world operates because that's a world where you are only giving, not a world where any of your efforts um, or your care or your time or your energy are reciprocated. The great thing about perfectionism is that once we learn that perfectionism is really a manifestation of our fear, of our fear of being judged, of our fear of being a disappointment, you know, we're, we're raised to please our parents and we get in trouble if we don't. And then we go theoretically to college and we're supposed to get good grades so that we can appease our professors. And we have to do the work that we do in a way that is amenable to that professor. And every professor is different. I remember in college being called the, uh, like the professor's pet because I would go around to every professor and learn what their styles were learn what their preferences were so that I could get good grades. And it's not that I didn't genuinely seek to do well, I did, but I also had it in the back of my head that in order to get a good grade in this class so that I can make sure that I have a job when I graduate, I, I had to learn what perfectionism looked like for them. And we have that entire manifestation in our jobs, in our, you know, in our personal life, in parenting, in friendships, hopefully a little bit less so in friendships, but still, I mean, it's like this, we are trying to reach somebody else's ideal so that we can be accepted, so that we go back to that idea, the chapter before last of connection and how we deeply need that. And the idea that we don't have that leads to fear which leads to toxic perfectionism. The great thing is that we do have an antidote, which is self-compassion. Self-compassion, while super important, it's hard. Fundamentally, self-compassion is good for you, or as I say in the book, the absence of self-compassion is harmful. Under the heading of if I, if one spinning plate falls, then all the others will be meaningless. Like it has to be perfect. There's no room for a single minor error. Those of us who were raised with human giver syndrome were raised to sort of pull out the whip whenever there's a gap between us and expected us. I know that I have historically fallen victim. I've fallen victim to believing that because my mad woman whips me, I've achieved something. But the reality is that the whipping isn't why I achieved. 
it's because of persistence and relationships and rest and compassion and kindness. I feel very listicle today. It's not the whips that make them stronger. It's their persistence, their relationships, their ability to rest. So I think it's fascinating that we have all of these incredible resources. We have all of these resources around us that are enabling us to succeed in one hand. And in the other hand, we have a whip and we're looking at all of these amazing things on one hand and a whip in the other. And we're like, it's the whip. That's what's causing me to achieve. That's what's pushing me. But that's just not the case. I think the whip could get you somewhere. I think you're going to get further uh, with your persistence, relationships, resting, kindness, all of that. It's just so easy to forget that it's not the whip. It is. It's like the opposite of the whip, in fact, that, <laughs> that helps us achieve. I love that you went into like the good things that we have because most of us forget all of the strengths that we do have. We yep. forget the experiences that we have been in, that we have been able to get through or overcome or even just meet where it is and come out without being detrimentally wounded. We have done so much, all of us, everybody who's listening to this, it doesn't matter if you equate yourself to a worm or you equate yourself to a queen. You have been through so many things and you have gotten through them every day. You are still here. You are a fighter and you have so many strengths that can be used to pull yourself forward. Whatever that looks like for you, it doesn't have to be success from somebody else, but maybe that's making one small step toward habits that you want to achieve. Maybe that's starting a book that you want to write, or, you know, maybe it's just healing. And there's this quote from the book, many of us simply get used to walking around in some degree of pain all the time to the point where we consider it normal. When we walk around and we are in misery because we are whipping ourselves because we are not the ideal version and we are trying to achieve perfection we're setting ourselves up for failure. And when we put down the whip, we give our old wounds the opportunity to heal, which for a lot of us is often the first time we've ever done it. But healing hurts. <laughs> that it does in a whole other way. Yeah, in the book, Emily and Amelia, they equate it to sort of like an antiseptic pain. So like putting alcohol on a wound, like an open wound is going to burn. It is going to hurt. It is going to be uncomfortable. But this is for the first time, I never thought we'd get to this place in the show. This is the one and only time I will ever say, if it burns, it's working. 
If you can mm-hmm. honestly say you've put down the whip, you are focused on all of your other resources and you're still uncomfortable. It might just be because your old tricks aren't working and you are developing new coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. It kind of feels like growing pains in my mind. Like, It's a good thing, but that doesn't mean it's a comfortable thing. There's a really great analogy here. Please tell me you're talking about the lobsters. Of course I'm talking about the lobsters. No on the flip side show is complete without an animal analogy of some sort. Yes. (laughs) And this is, this is Amelia's analogy for it. So A lobster is a squishy animal stuffed inside of a hard shell. It grows, but the shell does not. Eventually it gets too big for the shell and the discomfort of that confinement leads it to scuttle under a rock, shed the too small constraint and grow a new, bigger, thicker shell. The process is uncomfortable and it leaves the lobster temporarily vulnerable, but ultimately it gains new size and strength that it would never have developed if it hadn't gone through the struggle. So us putting down the whips and jumping ship on sort of the coping mechanisms that have to do with self-flagellation is going to be uncomfortable in its own way. But if you're looking to grow and, and create new coping mechanisms, it's part of the process. And strength is scary. I mean, when you go through that growing process and you become a a new lobster, (laughs) your own new lobster, I'm sure there's some form of hashtag for that somewhere. When we stop beating ourselves up, we do grow stronger, even if we are in a different shell, even if we have the same situation around us. Uh, And sometimes we become so strong that we no longer feel pushed around by the human giver. You know, we've spent eight, I think, episodes talking about the human giver, and it has become an ingrained part of my daily life of checking in and seeing, is this me or is this the human giver side of me? And it's amazing that strength through self-compassion and removing that honestly, self-torture of self-criticism and judgment and never enoughness. It's amazing that there's an antidote for human giver syndrome, at least to the extent that it doesn't have to rule your life. What's nuts for me is that the antidote isn't having another thing to do. It is simply putting down the whip. It is simply speaking to yourself like you would speak to your friends. It's not, Mm. you know, the worm song. It's not, nobody likes me, everyone hates me, I guess I'll go eat worms. It's treating yourself with the same kind of love and compassion and humor, I think, that, that you treat your friends with. How many times do we need to talk about the fact that we talk to ourselves 
in ways that we would never, ever talk to each other. That's such a good point. It does beg the question, though. Do we, at some level, cling to the whipping and human giver syndrome in order to self-sabotage? And I don't, I don't mean that as an accusatory thing as much mm -hmm. as a I tried self-compassion for a long time and it never worked for me. It wasn't until recently that I allowed myself to stop pulling out the whip because of fear. I didn't know what was on the other side, but I don't know what it is for everybody else. Is it fear of the unknown or what do you think? I don't know. I think I got pretty far in life with the whip. But I think there's a ceiling on how far you can get with it. So while I don't think I was consciously self-sabotaging, there was the feeling of, well, if I don't do this, like if I don't consistently punish myself in order to excel, what are my tools? What will drive me towards success? Or, you know, sometimes not even success, just the next thing or the next step. And it's laid out so plainly and cleanly in this book, but it never occurred to me that the opposite of whipping myself was being kind to myself. That the opposite of living in a pressure cooker was simply to not. Because without that, what am I? And I, I don't think it was a conscious thing, but I do think for me personally, I, until I could answer that question, I wasn't ready to put down the whip. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It does. And I think I only got to the point that I was willing to try putting down the whip, not, not committing, just, you know, putting it down where I could see it until I knew what that sort of next thing was. And it's funny because my therapist brought this up when we first started working together. And it's something that I've always done, but I really couldn't tell you why. At one point she asked me if I had any photos of me as a little kid. And basically her point was, what does she deserve and what makes you any different from her? She is you. And, you know, I don't want anybody to be mean to little me. And maybe this is a roundabout way of getting here. But when I put down the whip, it was only because I started befriending my mad woman. I think my mad woman is just like an eight-year-old who wants people to be proud of her, who wants to do a good job and whenever she doesn't do something perfectly, decides it's a bad job. So I was able to cautiously put down my whip when I went up to the attic to meet my mad woman face to face and realized it was just a little kid who wants the best. And, and, meeting her realize like putting a face to the mad woman name allowed me to turn to her with kindness and compassion that was sort of like 
earth shifting for me. Hmm. I was able to just turn and face the strange. Oh, the strange. <laughs> As the book describes, turning and face the strange is basically just stopping for a moment to notice what's happening without biting or judging it, which is also a definition of mindfulness. And knowing what's true even in the uncomfortable parts. And I love that you personified your criticism, your critic, you know, which is the mad woman inside. And you made it a person. You made it somebody that you can become friends with. If we don't do that, then we tend to just think it's part of our head and it's not an option. And everything that that critic deems correct or wrong or however it wants to have an opinion on it, if it's mad, we have to abide by it and be mad outwardly. And what turning and facing the strange or mindfulness encourages is that we are not our thoughts. Like our thoughts exist, they come into being, but they don't identify who we are. They are just present. And so that's why we need to have observational distance and have that calm and neutral exploration of when things pop up for us. You know, what brought you here and why is that mad woman flipping out about the situation? Like, let's sit next to her or they or him on a bench and turn and face them and see where they're coming from, what is triggering them to come out and what we actually feel about that with them as a separate entity. And the moment that we realize that we are not our thoughts is the moment that we have the ability to set down the whip and really love ourselves for all of the strengths that we do have. It's a lot harder to villainize my inner child than it is a quote unquote mad woman in the attic. If I hadn't sat down with her and said like level with me, what are, what are we doing here? I think I would still think she was a little bit of like a meanie bully who's trying to push me around and tell me I'm doing a bad job if something isn't absolutely perfect but it's really just a scared eight-year-old. Mm -hmm. James Baldwin says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. And that includes your relationship with your inner critic. If you can't find a way to practice some observational distance, turn, face it, and really consider what its core drivers and motivators are and fears, you're never going to be able to fully understand it, which means you're probably going to live under its thumb. And it feels silly to live under the thumb of an eight-year-old. And I know from personal experience that both you and I still struggle with this every day. Yeah. Right. It's, this is not something where Lindsay and I are like, you have to do this or you will be miserable for the rest of your life. This is Lindsay and I have experience with this and burnout puts it in such a succinct way that is 
swallowable, right? It's, it's not going back to Lindsay's whale. Mm-hmm. It's piece by piece. And while had you asked me a couple years ago to sit on a bench next to my inner critic, whatever she looks like, uh, I would have probably sat and listened intently and then been like, I have no freaking idea how to do that. And so it, it takes time. It takes conscious effort. It takes the small moments of listening and being like, yeah, I'm being really mean to myself right now and starting there. And, you know, for everyone, it's a different process, but at least for me, it was just taking those moments of noticing, being mindful of how often instead of fixing the problem or being positive, I was being hard on myself or judgmental of the situation or going to, you know, making assumptions and the noticing, you know, gets us into this attitude over time of gratitude. I was afraid you were going to say that because women are, (laughs) women are beat over the head with an attitude of gratitude. Um, and I think I can speak for both of us and both of our inner critics when I say being grateful for good things doesn't erase the difficult things, but being mindful makes it possible to be grateful for who you have and how things happen. Um, gratitude works by providing tools for the moments where you're struggling. And it, I mean, in some ways it's really just really, really concentrated, positive reappraisal, looking at something saying at a distance, this is what it is. And then parsing through that because even the shittiest situations aren't all bad. I love in the book um, that they say that an attitude of gratitude, the, the habit that we tend to get beaten over the head with is more negative almost. It's, it's like, if I list out all the things that I'm grateful for, I can acknowledge all the things that these other people don't have. And that's why it comes back to what you said of being grateful, of being grateful for who you have, who in your life is a support. Even if it's your inner critic, you know, in a way she's kept you safe. I'm sure she's taken you down some interesting rabbit holes too, but she's definitely kept you safe in a lot of ways. And also gratitude for how things happen whether you're a part of them or not, there are things in your life that you can be grateful for, uh, that how they happen and what got you here, what got other people to where they're at, especially loved ones, kids, family, that type of thing. You know, a big part of me really resents the fact that I believed that I was excelling or not because of the whip in my hand. And at the same time, I'll also say that I'm really happy with where I am. Um, That's not to say things are perfect, but I wouldn't change 
any of it because it got me to where I am. So while I'm not grateful that I was handed a whip so young, and to be totally clear, I was handed a whip when I was born as a little girl in the industrialized West. You know what I mean? Like it's this, this was ingrained in me, not specifically by my parents or my friends or my loved ones or extended family, but, but by society as a whole. And if I take a step back and, and really think about this, I am grateful for how, how it happened for how I got here. Was it clean and perfect and easy? No. Do I have scars from my lashings? Probably. But that doesn't change the outcome. And I'm grateful that I've been able to read this book and internalize it and do it as part of my job because it's given me a whole new set of tools for moving forward. I would have never gotten to the point where I can recognize that when you're cruel to yourself, you're, you're really just adding more cruelty to the world. Um, and that when you're kind and compassionate with yourself, you're increasing the amount of kindness and compassion in the world. I'm grateful for the whip because it got me here and it, makes what I just said make sense. I I understand it. I don't know it. I don't just know it. I understand it because I know what it's like to hold the whip. There's a quote in the book that says, being kind to yourself is both the least you can do and the single most important thing you can do to make the world a better place. And, you know, when you were talking about that, one of the first things you said is, I'm happy with where I'm at. It wasn't perfect, or it isn't perfect, but I wonder if we got rid of the whip entirely, if your answer wouldn't be confidently, I'm happy with where I'm at, with no feeling of needing to defend it. (laughs) It's like the the misery loves company thing. And we have become a society where everybody is so hard on themselves, where it's almost like we feel bad to celebrate when somebody else is happy. So we follow it up with a defense. It's like, I'm happy, but it's not perfect. What if we were to just accept everybody for I'm happy and celebrate that? I guess my point was not in defense. My point is that it doesn't have to be perfect for me to be grateful for where I am. It doesn't have to be perfect for this to be exactly where I'm supposed to be. So yeah, it's not perfect. Could it be better? Yes, obviously. I would love to hit the lottery buy a dream home and and adopt every cat in the world. I would love that. That would be perfect. But just because it's not that doesn't mean it's not, like, really cool. Do you think you can be happy while striving for perfection, though? 
while thinking about adopting all the cats in the world. Like if that's an option, can you be happy with the two that you have? Yeah. I think the nature of chasing perfect is a zero sum game. I think it's a binary, it's all or nothing. It either is perfect or it's bad. And I think since I've put down the whip, I have stopped chasing perfect, but I'm, I can still strive for things, if that makes sense. Do I realistically think that I'm going to hit the lottery and adopt every cat in the world? No. Am I going to be disappointed in myself if I don't? No. Because that doesn't take away from the life that I have built. Mm. Good differentiation there. Right? One of the reasons that I brought that up is because we're all connected. Right? This is... It's like the butterfly effect. And the more of us who are kind to ourselves and show compassion, the better the world will be because we are connected and our wellness is tied to each other. So dropping the whip, putting down self-criticism, not to the extent that we don't try, that we don't celebrate the wins in our own life, but enough to where we are there for ourselves enough to see our strengths and bring those out when we need them instead of the whip instead of the mad woman although she will always have a place in our hearts yes of course we need her we do in order to dream in order to think about adopting all of the cats and making a new life or a better life for ourselves we need that motivation but it doesn't have to come with quite as much pain we are not meant to walk around in pain all the time we are meant to go through the pain heal cycle all the time <laughs> yep. but we have to allow space for that and one of the places that we find space for that is in joy. Well, that really is the last part of this book. It's called Joyfully Ever After. And the authors were saying like at the top of, it's like a very, very short sort of final thoughts chapter that they kind of wanted to end it on a happily ever after note, but that that's not how the world works. That's not what we're striving for. Happiness is predicated on happenings. Happiness is predicated on me winning the lottery and adopting all those cats. It's based on what's occurring on whether or not your life is going right and whether all is well. But joy arises from an internal clarity about purpose. So the end of this book is called Joyfully Ever After. I'd like to interject here for a moment, if you're okay with that. When we're talking about joyfully ever after, happily ever after, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is how we started this podcast, going back to like Disney princesses mm -hmm. and how they all have their I want song. Mm -hmm. And as time has changed, they're joyfully ever after comes when they realize their purpose. And 
a long time ago with like Snow White, it was having a man and a whole lot of smaller men for emotional support and hilarity um, and animals and all of that. And, and her purpose was different and it has evolved. And now you have princesses who are finding their purpose through opening restaurants or becoming who they are meant to be in life. I think of when you asked me who my princess was that I relate to the most. And I said, uh, Rapunzel from mm -hmm. Tangled. And I was thinking about how at the end she ends up disclaimer. I'm going to spoil the movie if you've never seen it, but she ends up having all of her hair, which defined her cut off and it changes color. And she also finds her parents and she also finds uh, a partner in life. And she goes from this environment that she was raised in, that she was told, this is all you're going to amount to, to finding a completely different situation and finding her purpose, which wasn't to be defined by something that she was told all of her life was the only important thing about her, which was her hair. It was extremely useful hair as it grew and had a personality and all of that, but it's about finding our purpose. And a lot of times that can happen in our daily life, right? We don't need a so-called happily ever after. We just need to find that internal clarity about our purpose because in reality, joy comes from connection with fellow givers. It comes from being there for each other. And uh, there's this quote that I, as a health and well-being coach, love on page 214 that says, wellness, once again, is not a state of mind, but a state of action. It is the freedom to move through the cycles of being human and this ongoing mutual exchange of support is the essential action of wellness. It is the flow of givers giving and accepting support in all its many forms. So what's a cure for burnout? It's not self-care. You're not gonna find the cure to burnout the bottom of a bubble bath. It's caring for one another. Which I just think it's so interesting that this was the punchline on the book. And neither of us knew that when we started it, but we started it together because we both needed it and we both knew the other person needed it as well. We are each other's cure to burnout. And I, I know it's just you and me right now, but that applies to everyone. We are each other's cure for burnout, for the mad woman, for the whipping, for feeling lost and only vaguely knowing what your I want song sounds like. It's us. Amanda, do you want to bring us out with this final thought? I feel like, I feel like it should come from you. Well, to all those who are burnt out and who are thinking, how in the world am I going to add yet another thing of caring for the human givers in my life like I am? Just a gentle reminder 
that you have to put your own oxygen mask on first. You have to give yourself self-compassion and kindness and meet yourself where you are, not where the mad woman wants you to be, not where you came from. Simply sitting with yourself, facing the strange and being present. And with that, the most important part is trusting your body. You are enough. Your joy matters. And please tell everyone you know. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back with another book with more key learnings. And probably a lot more animal analogies here for season three. And (laughs) we hope you join us on this on this adventure I don't think either of us anticipated going on. So thank you for your time. Amanda, thank you for your partnership and your wisdom. And um, we'll see you guys soon.